Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So I think that this is all things that we need to consider. And I really long for the day that if you do make an informed decision to use synthetic hormones, that you also do your due diligence and understand all the other things that you can do to support your body so that when you decide to transition off, perhaps the impact won't be quite as severe as what it would be if you didn't do those things. I don't think that's the solution, but I think at least you're doing something and being proactive if that is what you choose. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello, Bettys, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I am really happy to bring you a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Natalie Kringudis. Nat is a two times best selling author. She is a two time award winning podcast host and an all around women's health and natural fertility practitioner. She has helped over 20,000 women over the tenure of her career rescue their hormones and reclaim their best life. Now, before we get into the specifics around what Nat and I talked about, I wanted to just read a review that came in. It is worth sharing. This is from uh, Valerie Smith from the US of A. And Val writes, you are a gift from the universe. Val, by the way, this made me cry. I shared it with my team, just so you know, this was how uh, wonderful this is. Thank you. I've been a long time listener. You have definitely changed my life. I have learned so many valuable things from you and have shared with so many women in my life. I've been wanting to write a review for about a year now, but everyone else just seems to take the words right out of my mouth until now. I just listened to a Betty Bite from your new book, which I just purchased and it brought me to tears. We are worth knowing about. So many women don't realize that we are never taught so many important aspects about our unique bodies. Women everywhere need to hear what you have to say, and I'll be doing my best to share it with those who need to know. Thank God for you and sharing your gift with the world. I am beyond grateful from Val Smith. 
So just for the record, like I'm not crying, you're crying, right? Okay, I cried too. So thank you so much, Val. And if you, my Betty, if you are finding this episode useful, please, the pretty please with a cherry on top, organic cherry on top, uh, rate and review the pod. It helps other people find us as well. And of course, there are three other ways that I can help you get better beyond the podcast. First is you can follow me on Instagram. It's sort of my daily musings. I share tips and, you know, you can watch my stories to see more behind the scenes footage from my podcast, my daily routines, kind of skincare, beauty, all that stuff. You can find me at Dr. Stephanie Estima, first name, last name, and excited to connect with you there. The second way, of course, is you can buy a copy of my number one international best-selling book, The Betty Body, A Geeky Goddess's Guide to Intuitive Eating, Balanced Hormones, and Transformative Sex. You can get your copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I know it is now on Chapters and in Indigo for my Canadians. And then of course, head over to bettybodybook.com and I've put together uh, over $500 in bonuses and gifts as my way of thanking you for buying the book. And thirdly, if you are looking for a group or other Bettys, other supportive women just like you who want to grow and keep you accountable to your transformation goals, then I would love for you to join the Worldwide Bettys in our Hello Betty Club. We get together every week on Zoom. It's either training, connection. Uh, we are answering questions around weight loss, hormones, clean beauty, fitness, rehab, all of the things. Uh, this month, we are working on desires and creating your desire list and how to prioritize pleasure. So if you are a fan of the show um, you and you are interested in learning more about Hello Betty, head over to hellobetty.club. That's H-E-L-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y dot club forward slash V-I-P. Okay, so without further delay, this was my conversation with Nat. So Nat is someone who really mastered and has mastered the conversation around menstruation and hormones for young women. As you may recount from your own personal experience when you started your period, it's not just smooth sailing. We don't menstruate. We don't know how to menstruate. It's like riding a bicycle. We don't just get on and innately know how to do it. We practice, we mess up. And the same is true for our menstrual cycle. So Nat and I had a conversation around talking about how to speak to our daughters, how to speak to young women and how we can, um, you know, there's competing spheres of influence, right? There there's peers, they're sort of feeling, hearing falsehoods from their friends. So how we can begin to bridge and have a productive conversation around their menstrual cycle, how we can talk about libido for young women and sexuality and sensuality, because I think that these are also like, how great would it have been if your mother or your aunt or someone sort of took you under their wing and was like, this is how you make yourself feel great. And, you know, when you decide to be with your partner, this is how, you know, these are some tips and tricks that I'm passing down to you. Like how awesome would that have been? Right. So let's just do that for our girls, for the next generation, how we can talk to them about their feelings, about feeling aroused around their sexuality. 
talking, let's how we can talk to them about the pill. Um, what are some of the drawbacks of the pill? We've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but she really breaks it down in a really beautiful, uh, beautiful way. So overall, this is a really important conversation for any mother or any aunt or anyone who knows any teenage girls or preteens, how we can begin to have these productive conversations so that they don't have to learn about it from their peers who are very likely misinformed how we can empower them so that they can make better choices. And this is actually how we tether them to us and how we teach them how to make uh, adult-like choices as, as, as young, as younglings. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nat Kringudis. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot after hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Dr. Nat Kringudis, I am just tickled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love that I'm tickling. 
<laughs> we are going to have a great conversation. I reached out to you a while ago, wanting to have you on the pod to talk about young girls and their experience moving from not having their periods to having their periods, all the things that can happen during that time as a way to empower some, like to empower the moms. We have a lot of moms that listen to this pod um, as a way to empower moms, to let them know that some of the things that their girls are experiencing are normal. Um, some of the common things that we might see, because we often know common and normal, not always the same, right? It's always not the same overlapping Venn diagram. There is some overlap sometimes, but they're not mutually um, exclusive. And just what, it, you know, the experience of young girls, how, you know, some of the messaging that we get culturally in terms of what it means to have a period and how that contrasts with, with boys and ways that we can just start opening up the conversation. Because I think that this is like, I remember when I was younger and it was like getting your period was this like terrible event. If you like spotted, you know, through your genes, it was like, you were going to be the laughing stock. Like it was this thing where you had to hide it as much as you can. You had to hide your symptoms. You had to hide when you were on your period. You didn't talk about it. I certainly don't remember having a conversation with my mother about it and just kind of learning sort of as I went. And, um, yeah, so I would love that. I'm so excited to have you on. Like we're going to talk about all those things today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love talking about this. I think the change that we get to create as women that have been through a lot of this mm. and talking about it is how we actually really change the landscape for young women and then other generations. So I feel a big responsibility for us current generation, whether you're a loved one, a mother, a neighbour, whoever you are, to take a level of responsibility because we get to change this trajectory because we didn't have the information. You're correct. That's right. And we both, uh, of course, have worked with JJ Virgin, who has been a mentor of mine and yours. And one of the things that she says is a rising tide lifts all boats. And if we can begin to help people who are maybe just a little bit further behind us on the path, right, we can lift everyone up. And then the whole, you know, the whole, you know, fleet, is that right? Of boats, like we're all better. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when we were preparing my most recent book's called Beautiful You and it's targeted at young women, that said, any woman that picks it up says, why are you targeting at young women? Because we can all learn this information because we weren't taught that. And it's interesting because we surveyed mothers and we surveyed daughters when we were preparing for the marketing and around 80% of mothers weren't satisfied with the information that their daughters were getting at school. Mm -hmm. We discovered that the majority of young girls were Googling to find out answers. And we also discovered that around 40% of mothers didn't know the difference between her vagina and her vulva, which we laugh at, right? But it speaks volumes. How can you teach somebody if you don't know yourself? And not all of us are comfortable in talking about it, and I understand that, but I really think it's an opportunity to create an even deeper and more beautiful relationship with your younger, whether it's your daughter, like I said, or you might be an aunt or a, just a loved one, to be able to connect a little bit deeper. But the question is, well, when do you start talking about it? Because I think this is the issue. We get this information when we turn a certain age, and it's like a bomb has been dropped on us as right. young girls. Right. And so I say to women all the time, or especially mums, when your children start to ask you questions, answer it 
in a time appropriate way and an age appropriate way. If your four-year-old is asking mum, where'd I come from? And we're saying, oh, the doctor put you in there or the stork <laughs> dropped you off. Mm-hmm. And look, the doctor might have put you in there. There's all different ways of, of conception and that's okay. But I think fundamentally, if we're not laying the foundation when they're asking the questions, then it becomes a slippery slope where you do get to being 12 and then it's like this mysterious you know, whole bunch of information all at once is given to you and you don't really know what to do with it. You're not emotionally developed enough. And so I think it needs to be this organic conversation from the age that kids start asking the question. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I have, uh, so I have three boys, uh, two of them from, you know, biologically from my own body, one through marriage uh, with my partner, Giovanni. And my two young ones, they're 10 and eight, but they have been asking questions like, where did I come from? They've, we've had, you know, we've had guests on the podcast, um, around talking about emotional health of our children and how to speak to our, we've, we've had Jennifer Kalari on and some of these experts. And I said in, in these past episodes or these past podcast episodes that I've had very frank conversations with them. So, you know, one of my sons had said to me once, like, it feels really good. Like when I touch myself here, like, you know, and it feels like really, and so we've had conversations around masturbation and why that's really healthy and why your body can make you feel really good because I don't, I want to have real and frank conversations, of course, in an age appropriate way. Like we're not sitting down together watching Pornhub, but you know, I'm having, <laughs> having a conversation that I, where I'm able to impart some of my thinking and some of my experience around sexuality. And of course I don't have girls, but I also think it's important for our boys when they start dating girls to have a good understanding of what's happening so that they can also be of support to them as well and not just make silly offhand, like remark comment, you know, these offhand comments or remarks that I heard when I was dating, you know, guys around like, oh, you're, you're in a bad mood. Are you on, are you on the rag? Like, are you, yes. in, you that yes. kind of thing? So I think I, I, I'm just echoing your sentiment here around the importance of speaking to our kids. So let's actually dive deep into there. What, when I, I know you have uh, children as well, when did you first speak, start speaking to your children if you have, and maybe if you can, some examples of what an age appropriate response might be. So the four-year-old, we're not going to be like, well, there's the vulva, there's the uterus, there's the menstrual cycle. Like you're not, you know, you're not talking about no, that. We're not, but, we're not doing yeah. that. That is you're like, whoa, I don't want to know. Yeah. Um, I let, I have let the kids guide me with when they have been ready, just literally by answering questions when they've asked them. You're spot on also in saying that they've got no emotional experience or attachment to anything that happens when it comes to our sexual health, especially, and our reproductive health. Whereas adults, we've had an experience with that. We've formed ideas around that. And so we get very cagey or, you know, I don't know if that's a, a commonly used term, but it is in Australia. We, we get very defensive and a little bit embarrassed when we talk about sex or reproductive health or gynecological issues, perhaps. So I promise you that if you feel embarrassed about doing this, the first time you do it, you'll probably shrug your shoulders and think, oh, is that all? Like, because they right. don't they don't go for the detail. They just want the facts. So, mm-hmm. for example, when I never forget my daughter had asked, and I would say she was probably, she was late at asking, so maybe seven or eight, and she said to me, well, where did I come from? Like, how did I get in, in your tummy, mum? And I said, well, 
Um, Dad's got sperm and mum's got eggs and those sperm and egg have to get together and that's called conception and then that implants inside mum and then I grow that. And I could see her brain ticking over because when I said eggs, I'm pretty sure she's thinking, oh, like an egg carton. Yeah, like the ones I have for breakfast, yeah. It was very cute. And so I had to actually say to her, oh, and, you know, explain a little bit further. And I just explained it as mum and dad spend time together. And she was satisfied with that. Right. Um, And so as time went on, that conversation just continued to grow. What's interesting is it's always been in front of my son and he's never asked the question, but I know he's listening because he will recall things or say certain things that I know were a conversation with Olivia, my daughter. Um, So... We continued to have these conversations, but what was really standout to me was one day Olivia walked home not that long ago, last year perhaps, and she's 12 now, nearly 13, and she said, Mum, can we please talk? And I said, of course, sweetie, what's wrong? And she said, it's just one word and it's period. And I said, oh, were you talking with the girls at school today about your period? She goes, no. And I'm like, okay, well, what happened? And she wasn't in a, you know, playful mood at this point you could tell it was a heavy conversation about to go down and she said oh the teacher sat us down today and we talked about it and I was quite upset with that because I want that opportunity you're like that's my job that's my yeah. job right that's my job here's, yeah. why, here's why I was upset more than anything is she said to me mum they told us that we're probably all going to get our period within the next year they told us that it's not fun it's painful it's embarrassing and that it's just something that happens to girls or women and um, that we should just be prepared for that. And she said, I don't really want to get my period. It doesn't sound like something I want to have. And I said, oh, sweetie, I said, that's what mummy does for work. I will fix it if it is any of those things. You do not need to worry. But I am now upset because she's still got that in her head that that's what her first experience is going to be like and what a different conversation and outcome could have been had if, A, the people that were teaching it had good experiences around their period because clearly they haven't. Yeah. And, yeah, and, B, we didn't have instill this idea that it was going to be horrible for them. And thank you for sharing and projecting your experience onto children that haven't actually experienced it yet. Like that's completely inappropriate as well. Yeah. So upset because again, it just demonstrated all of these things that we've been talking about, plus the lack of understanding ourselves as grown women. Right. And we their intention around that was just preparing them. It wasn't out of being obviously rude or spiteful or anything other than giving them information and preparing them as young women. But the way that it was delivered was obviously not as I would have done that and I would have made it, you know, something that was light and conversational and inclusive. They've got questions and obviously they didn't get answered either. And empowering. There's something also, you know, wonderful about being a woman that, that is to be celebrated. And yes, there can be problems. Yes, we can run into troubleshooting issues. But as you were saying, you are the, you know, if there's anyone that's going to fix it, you're like, I'm the mom that does this for a living. Like I'm educating grown women and women of your age. So I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that there's a shift that I would love to see in my lifetime where we start moving away from this, like, you know, the curse, like they used to call it the curse, right? Like that's exactly what those teachers sounded like, where it's like, you're going to, the curse is coming like in within the year, it's going to be bad and it's going to hurt and it's going to be terrible. And, you know, you can't do anything about it rather than your body is now getting ready to create 
life. And this is how lucky you are to be a woman is that you, every single month, you have this beautiful cycle that happens and there's highs and lows, just like life and a parallel, you know, all these different messages that I think we can be sending to them. Absolutely. So I really saw that as an opportunity to obviously continue to have these conversations with her, but it was a you know, perfect example of how we, again, need to take responsibility and talk about it in a way that is just factual and not heavy and not taboo and not mystical. And even I was fed. I remember my mum saying to me when I was in pain as a teenager, I'm so sorry, it just sucks to be a woman. And it stayed with me. That has stayed with me. Now, I don't believe that, but that that conversation, because now I think, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry that that's what you felt and thought was a great thing to tell me at the time. Right. Um, because just those exact um, points that you've just said, it, it it's not that. And you're 100% right. We just need to keep on talking about it. And it becomes this conversation that evolves organically over time that's age appropriate. I got to the point with Olivia where I was, begging for her to ask me about sex. I Mm -hmm. kept feeding questions, but like, you know, just statements. And I I was, (laughs) in the end, I'm like, can we have this conversation? Because (laughs) I really want you to have this information. But she was just not interested. And that's the other thing too. We're going to get children that aren't interested, that don't care, aren't curious. Again, they still at times ask questions. And wow, I saw that as an opportunity for her. I went all in at that point. I was like, okay, Okay, let's go. And and we laughed and laughed about it. In fact, I filmed it and put it on my Instagram because people love watching the conversations between Olivia and I and how they roll out. And her, you know, she's just not a worldly child. She's very naive. She's very, she's very sheltered. And so for her doing that in a way that was fun and we laughed about it and that was exactly what she needed, I think, to get that information across. Whereas me as a child, I was fascinated with it. I was so fascinated. I remember having a booklet that was maybe 16 pages at best and it was a whole lot of diagrams and I devoured that book. And it's interesting that here I am doing this work because it just, I remember, I just remember how it was, it was, it was mystical to me. It was fascinating to me. So, you know, you can have two different people and that's fine, but I, I still think that it's, it's, you can still have these conversations in various ways that work for both the educator and the child or whoever's listening. Yeah. I remember, um, I think it was my young one. I think it was Sebi. He was asking me something like where, and he was maybe five maybe five, six, like, where did, where did I come from? Like I was in your tummy and I was like, yeah, you know, mommy and daddy, like we fit together, like a puzzle, like two puzzle pieces coming together. And like, you know, and he was like, oh, okay. And like was off. He was, he sort of was like, okay, not like, I don't want the whole conversation. They don't I just, mind, they yeah. don't want, they just want the facts. Yeah. Olivia now is at an age where she had a lot of really interesting questions when we were having this conversation. It's so funny. I invite anyone to go back and find it on my IGTV, but she's asking questions like, well, how do you do it? And I, I said, well, we obviously, she goes, do you sit up? Do you lie down? Do you need a cushion? Do you put a cushion behind your back? Does it hurt? Like it was, it's really, <laughs> really above sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. But, you know, she got the information she needed and she was ready to ask the questions and she's nearly 13 and I'm surprised that she doesn't have her period yet, but it can't be very far away. And I think also 
making them aware of that as well. And I've said that to her because the other thing she said when the teachers had put them into that discussion was, oh, my period must be coming because you, you tell me all the time that um, you tell me all the time that I'm moody. And I said, oh, I don't think I tell you all the time that you're moody, but sometimes you do have mood swings. And I said, that's one of the first things that will start to happen. But, sweetie, you're not close yet. I can tell you that there's other things in your body that happen first. So we got to have the discussion about puberty and looking out for certain signs and how your body is talking to you and telling you things. And so it's been really lovely to continue to have those conversations. I wish I had started them earlier, to be honest, but, you know, we live and learn. We live and learn. Yes. And I think you're doing a great job. So I would, like I just said to you in the pre-chat, we're all, we're all messing up our kids in some oh, way yeah. and you are, you are <laughs> just a model mother. So uh, let's, let's actually talk about that. Let's talk about when, what are some of the physical signs that a, a young girl is, that we're looking for to say, okay, so she's kind of getting close, you know, might be the mood swings, but physical changes that we see, what are some of the things that might tip off a mom? clinician, whoever, that a girl is getting ready to start menstruation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we, like you said, there's certain classic symptoms, mood swings being one of them, but we tend to see the breast buds start to develop first. And when we were growing up, the average age for the period to start was around 13. The average age now is around 11. So, and we can talk about why that might be the case, but we tend to see the breast buds forming first and then, and they can come and go over, you know, several years. I, I would say I saw Olivia start when she was around eight and she's nearly 13 and now she's definitely developing. Um, but yeah, the breast buds will develop first. And then obviously you start to see signs of um, pubic hair and body odor are the main things that you'll observe and the mood swings. Um, and of course the discharge as well, the, the cervical fluid um, I think as kids, we called it discharge, but now I talk about cervical fluid and I, for some reason, they're not the same thing in my mind, but they're exactly the same thing. It's just, <laughs> and I think that's something that, that they'll see more of, but you definitely you see signs of that increasing as they get ready to menstruate. Um, and so look, not everybody develops in the same way, but I think you can definitely see those changes in your daughters as a mum over a period of about a year or year or so. Um, and that's going to be determined by lots of other factors, genetics, environment, um, stress levels for the, for the children, um, toxin exposure. There's other things that weigh into that. But if we're talking a perfect textbook case, um, the average age is between, I would say now, 11 and 13 to see that. And sometimes so I was saying to you in the pre-chat, just had a conversation with uh, Dr. Ben Bakeman, who loves insulin resistance, all things insulin resistance, and not sure when his episode's coming out relative to yours. So yours might come out before his, but he was, we were talking about precocious puberty and how we can, we, he is starting to see uh, a phase shift where just as you said, you know, 12, 13 used to sort of be the standard or at least the average. And now we're seeing that mean move up earlier, 11. And, you know, sometimes in the extreme, we're seeing children start, girls start menstruating eight, nine, 10. Let's, uh, and you touched on some of them. I want to sort of peel each of those apart. Why would it be that someone would start menstruating earlier than that 11 to 13 window? And then maybe we can follow that up with um, potentially some, some solutions that we might want to think about as well. Mm -hmm. I think you need to always look at why I'm such a investigator when it comes to why and treating each 
child case by case, I think, is very important because it's such an individualised approach. And also working out, is there anything sinister or concerning that's going on? So that's really important. And there can be reasons when we're talking precocious puberty anyway, and that's puberty sort of in those younger years, I would say anything before eight years of age, which eight is still young, but it's not uncommon. Um, they tend to not see the breast buds first. The symptom is really BO or body odour and um, pubic hair. And that can be seen as young as two, two years of age. And that's obviously concerning. If you're seeing that at two years of age, you're definitely going to know that you need to look into that further. But I guess as kids get older, five, six, seven, it's still early and I still would be investigating that. Um, but it tends to be potentially less sinister the older that they get and the closer to those average ages that you talk about. So, you know, there is this hereditary element, of course, but what I tend to see, and, and sorry, outside of anything sinister, which would look like um, some type of issue with brain, some potential tumoral growth that is actually impacting how the brain is then instigating the rest of your sex hormones and your adrenals. Like an anterior um, pituitary hormone, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, that tends to be the most common reason for a really young age, but it's not the only reason. And so this is where I think we have to look at all the other factors when you rule out something that is more serious. And this is where I tend to see patients in the clinic because they're not coming to me because they've got potentially something, a tumour that might need to be addressed or removed. They're coming to me because their other healthcare providers have said there's nothing we can do we could use steroids actually to sort of slow this down, but obviously that comes with other challenges and side effects. So it's a matter of what you feel is right for your child. But so putting that aside and that not being a huge factor, what I'm seeing, and this needs much more research into it, this is anecdotal purely, is that these children that have been exposed to extreme stress in their younger years seem to be presenting with precocious puberty when there isn't anything else at play. And so I'm really keen to look into this area more because I don't have all the answers, but it makes sense to me if there is high stress and the adrenals are being activated at a young age, and that can actually be in utero as well, then we are seeing these hormones almost turned on too early as a coping mechanism, because the body thinks it's actually why it's it's awake, it's wired, it's ready to go. So I often, obviously, ask a history of a child. But what I've tend to see, to see as a as a pattern is these children have had either the mothers either been extremely stressed whilst pregnant, or there's been some type of trauma, abuse, or high stress, whether it's a loss of a parent or even bullying or abuse um, in those younger years that their body is just trying to cope. And I'm really excited to look into and get more research in this area because I think the trend is that, you know, you, I can see that there's definitely a trend around this and I don't see it going away. As we mentioned before, I think there's a, definitely a hereditary factor when it comes to not just precocious puberty but early puberty Um and then, obviously, our environment, environmental toxins, endocrine disruptors, all of these, we know, I think, we've talked a lot about 
chemicals in our body products, in our environment, in our water, in our paint on our walls and the floor. You know, there's so many ways that our body absorbs these chemicals that mimic or disrupt our own natural hormone balance. And that can activate this to happen as well. Um, And then obviously food becomes a factor. And I'm sure that you've spoken about various foods that disrupt or imbalance hormones as well. And high stress in general, as we mentioned. So you know, if you combine all of these factors, it might not, it's not just one, it's the combination of many, I think, that lead to such outcomes. And if you are in such a way predisposed for this, I think that it's the perfect storm, isn't it, for that to then present itself. I think one thing I encourage, again, mothers to look at is their own health and their own line of health to help them preempt what might happen for their daughters if they don't create an environment that is conducive with supporting their hormone health. And I think that's the biggest key and the biggest gift. And often our mothers never spoke about their own health. We find out when we're 25 that, oh, actually my mum had endometriosis too, but she never told me. I'm only finding this out now. So having these conversations with our mum and using her body wisdom to allow us to scaffold in a way that supports us because we might need something different, you and I, to actually have the best health when it comes to our hormones. And so that's, I think, a really important question and conversation to be having with your mum. Yeah. Let, let's double click on diet for a moment. What And understanding that these are clinical patterns that you're observing, I get that, you know, we're not, we're not referencing like an RCT or a meta-analysis, but what are, when you're looking at some of these girls that are getting their periods early, is there patterns that you're teasing out in the history that might suggest, um, you know, high carbohydrates or lots of, like, you know, lots of sugar, lots of, and so, you know, and I'm saying that because I'm thinking in my head, the high cord, like the high insulin response is making the cells more insulin resistant. And therefore we get all of these sort of diseases of hyperinsulinemia. One of which, you know, the thinking, the current thinking is that precocious puberty can be lumped into these sort of diseases of hyperinsulinemia. PCOS is another one. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the clinical signs and symptoms that you see or patterns that you're, that you're teasing out? Yeah, so I think, first of all, with nutrition, I feel that we definitely know much more than ever before, whether we take it on board, but it's so important for our young girls to be able to have the right nutrition. And we, in the past, have seen foods, especially non-organic meats, chicken, they can often be um, have been a culprit in the past, I think. I I feel like our systems are a bit better now and they're a bit cleaner, but certainly for my generation, I mean, we grew up on chicken and it wasn't great chicken. And my mum still to this day is like, your your sister got her period when she was 10 and it was all that chicken um, because of the hormones that, that these um, animals are being fed and obviously the way that they're also fed and the foods that they eat obviously gets passed on when we eat. So being mindful around that I think is really important. And the other phytoestrogens that exist. So soy is also a really big factor, as I'm sure you've discussed before. The problem with soy is we don't eat it as it was traditionally made to be eaten. We eat it on its own or as a food replacement, a filler in foods. And so all of a sudden, if you are using soy as a dominant source of protein and nutrients, 
it is far more than your own body can handle and mimics estrogen within your body. So your body doesn't know the difference. It just looks at it and goes, oh, let's add to the estrogen pile. And all, all of these factors, they a lot of them add to the estrogen pile, just like the chemicals that we talked about a minute ago adds to the estrogen pile, just like stress. We haven't spoken about that in great detail, but stress can really influence estrogen levels as well. It adds to the estrogen pile. And so I would say... As a 101, one of the most common issues young women are facing is excess estrogen in their body. And that is coming from an external, mostly from external factors, as we've discussed. And then the secondary factor to that is, well, if your body can't then actually utilize it, metabolize it or clear it or detoxify your hormones, it just adds to the estrogen pile. And so it's this external situation coupled with what is your body actually doing with that that then contributes to a lot of the issues that we're seeing with young women, their periods, pain, and then feeding other issues. We we don't say that estrogen causes or excess estrogen causes PCOS or causes endometriosis or other hormone imbalances, but it's definitely a contributing factor for a lot of the time alongside things like insulin resistance, as you spoke about. So, you know, then you're talking about sugar as well. That becomes an issue because if, if there's, you know, high sugar in the diet, then again, it's just influencing how the body is regulating other hormones as a downstream effect. It's not the initial part of it, although it can be when it comes to things like weight gain or triggering certain um, systems of the body, but I think just understanding that I say to patients is just keep it really simple, but nutrition is so important. And we, for some reason, think that we can kind of go around it or we can supplement. Don't worry if you're not getting your nutrients, we just supplement it. But as a foundation, if the foundation's not there, then, and we're not setting a good example either for our daughters. That's the other thing too. I would love to say, it's like, I can't get my daughter to eat the foods that I know are better for her. And often we're not setting the example ourselves or we haven't set it for a period of time. Right. You, so, can't, you can't from the couch say, go and be active. Right. You cannot <laughs> you know? do that. No, you can't. And so even the other day, Olivia had said to me, why do you always have to work out? Why do you work out all the time? It's really annoying. I want to go here or I want to do that, but you're going to have a workout. And I said, you know, it's so important to move your body. It's so important to be healthy and look after yourself. And also I want to live for a really long time and I want to be here for when you have children and to support you. And this is one of the ways that I can make sure that I'm as healthy as possible. Now, she doesn't care. She doesn't care at all at this point in time, but she's going to be at some point in her life, 21, 25, whatever it might be, and she's going to remember that mum really looked after herself and that's why she's fit and healthy now. And so we we that's home to her. And that's what all of these things that we're talking about, we're creating a home base for our girls and our boys, but it's a home base and it's based on what they consider to be their normal. And if their normal is fast food, sitting on the couch, that, you know, sedentary lifestyle, that's what they're always going to default back to as comfort. So how can you create an environment that's comfort that is conducive with their health, their hormones, especially their reproductive health, and and just being the example. That's what we have to do as parents is be the example. So I think just, I know we've sort of sidetracked there, but I think nutrition, like you said, it is absolutely so important. And looking also at how your body systems are able to utilise nutrients, detoxify hormones, uh, 
so much of this can be done through nutrition. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And I, I love the the idea of being the example, because even though your daughter right now is like rolling her eyes at you, it's like, okay, whatever, mom, go and work out. You're a loser. You know, (laughs) that is going, that is going to be a core value for her in terms of, as you said, what is normal, what is, what was common in her household when she's older and she's trying to structure her, whether it's her children or her family life or whatever, is she knows that mom was working out. And even though she might rebel, because like I had the same, like my mom was the one giving me like the, the, the cherry tomatoes were my snack. Like everyone else had like the chocolate granola bars or the Joe Louis or whatever they were. And I had the cherry tomatoes and I was made fun of as a kid. And I was like, God, why can't I just have like the chocolate or the chips or whatever that everyone else has. But now I, I appreciate that because now my chemistry is different and it became a core value for me to know how to eat in a way that was honoring my body rather than destroying for the short-term gain for the short-term high that you get from the, from the chocolate, the chips, the crackers, Absolutely. whatever. I have a really similar story. We were the hippie family with the fruit men at the birthday parties. And I used to think, why can't we just have the chips and the chocolate? I'm so embarrassed. Right. And I did rebel. I moved away to study, you know, when I was 18, because I grew up in the country and that was really the only option when you wanted a tertiary education. And I totally rebelled. I had a Kentucky fried chicken that was around the corner and every single day for lunch for maybe a year, I had a Zinger burger because I could, because there was nobody standing here saying, do you really think you should be eating that? That's not the healthiest option. Mm -hmm. And it was I was living my best life. But what happened very quickly for me as an 18 year old, I gained a lot of weight. My periods were horrible. In fact, I would say that borderline endometriosis, I was the girl on the bathroom floor pressing my face up against the tiles because I was alternating from chills and fever and nausea and vomiting and the whole works. And it was not anything to do with my horrible periods that made me stop and think about my lifestyle, which was sedentary pretty much. I wasn't working out. I was obviously not eating great. And my skin was awful. Like, you know, we have the whole kit and caboodle when that happens. Mm -hmm. And it was simply because I was sick of feeling disgusting in my body that I came back to what I knew to be a healthy lifestyle. And probably at the time it wasn't conscious. It was already in bed in me that that's what I needed to do. I started working out. I started stopped eating KFC. I started doing what I thought at the time was healthy and it was definitely better than what I was doing and everything got better. I didn't associate my periods improving as an 18-year-old or 19-year-old right. right. with any of that. It's only in hindsight that 
I can now say, wow, everything was better as a result of that. And so, and then I've never, I've never gone back to that way of living because it feels awful. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that, I hope she has an experience that is similar because we can't know unless we do that. And, and it's all part of growing up as well. But I think if she did that, what would be important is to just continue to be the example and not preach to her and let her work it out unless it became a point where it was dangerous. And it's not through any fault of my mum, but there's definitely a lot of concern and possibly judgment and embarrassment too. If, if your daughter's coming home after being away for a year and she's gained two dress sizes, has a face full of acne, you're going to want to fix it, right? right. But I think just being the example still throughout all of that and not preaching to our teenagers and really listening to our teenagers makes the biggest difference. The world is a very heavy place when you're a teenager. Everything, and we laugh now as adults, we look at it and we're like, if only we were 18 again. Oh, the world on the, you know, the world of worry on your shoulders. I would never go back to 18. I was the stupidest woman when I was young. I would never, I was like, never. I'm so happy in my Right now, yeah. Remember how hard it felt, and remember how uncomfortable you felt. But do you not remember? I remember people saying to me, "Oh, I wish I was your age again. Just embrace it, love it." And I remember thinking, "You've got no idea how hard this is. This is really hard." Sure, I didn't have children, or I didn't have you know responsibilities as such. My biggest concern was, do I have enough time to socialize with my friends or whatever it might be? Mm -hmm. But I think just having some compassion around it is really important to stay connected to our younger generation. And so that's actually what really counts, not the you should be doing this and you should be doing that. Right. Let's come back to menstruation. I love all the tangents that we're taking. And this is what I said to you before we started. I'm like, we're going to kind of talk, see where it goes, because I think that those make the best podcasts. But when, so when, a, so let's, let's take your daughter, for example, there is a day she comes home and she says, mom, it happened. I finally got my, or maybe it happens at home, whatever. The day she comes, she gets her period. We know that I, well, I think that the assumption is that once you get your period, that it's like smooth sailing, it should come every 28 days and this is the thing and it's supposed to happen like this. Can you maybe outline some of the uh, tripwires, like some of the troubleshooting that may happen in in a young girl's, let's call it for six to 18 months um, of menstruating, what that, what might be some problems that she comes up with or that present as um, a, a newly menstruating uh, girl? I think your first period tells you so much actually about what could continue to happen. And so I think really having awareness and being very conscious about your daughter's first period especially is actually important. Asking the questions, getting the information. If you are straight out of the gates experiencing horrible periods, then you absolutely need to fix that. And when I mean horrible, I mean painful, heavy, with all the bells and whistles that we just spoke about, nausea, vomiting, that's nothing to go, you know what, we're just going to ride this out and see if it gets better. Mm -hmm. But I think for the majority of girls, it is not necessarily problematic at the beginning, especially if you're getting it at around the average age. And we can talk in a minute about if we're getting it when we're older. 
Um, so we're, it's expected that it's going to be a bit irregular. It's going to sometimes be light and sometimes be heavy. Your body is trying to find its its groove. It's trying to find its own hormonal maturation. And we don't mature hormonally until we're 21 as women. So that's a long time to really figure it out. Your body's really trying to figure out how to go through these years. It could be like from 11 to 20, that's 10 years. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, really observing and watching, I think in these younger years can be very helpful. Um, We definitely go through a phase around 16 where things do change. And this is often where we panic. And this is what I want to talk about is that we don't panic because it's very normal and we start to mimic signs of PCOS. So you might notice some weight gain, especially around the hips, acne starting to form. Um, The periods can become quite irregular when they've might have previously been regular up until that point um and mood swings obviously which is something that we can see at any time but they seem to be more dominant through this phase and basically the body mimics a a, a point in time where it, it it looks like it's presenting with pcos now what we do as mums without knowing that information is we panic, we take our daughters to the doctor and very often it's a slippery slope because this is the age where commonly the pill is prescribed. If we could know this information and just take a moment and really at this time dial in on a few things, I think it would be very useful to prevent that cascade of events happening where by the time a woman's 30, she has no idea about her body. She's been on the pill for, you know, 15 years and she's completely disconnected. But that starts with us as mums knowing that and being able to talk to our doctors also. If we are going to our doctors, sharing our concerns around that and asking the questions. And I think always, if you can always come back to why, why is this happening and get some explanation out of that, we can take the fear out of it and just look at it for what it is. So knowing that around 16, this happens, we can create some space for ourselves, I think, as mothers to just observe and know that it's fairly normal for that to happen. If it continued to happen beyond 18, then it's definitely something to look into. But also, if you know as a mother you have a history of PCOS, let's not muck around at that point. We start to treat it as if that is the case. So using your body wisdom and the clues of that coupled with what's happening for your daughter is a great way of being able to preempt what might be happening. And of course, you can get hormone testing done as well to really be able to absolutely know what is happening. But like I said, if your hormones aren't maturing until you're around 21 and you start taking the pill at 16, you are altering or effectively shutting down your sex hormones at this point in time. And I think what we fail to realise is that if you decide at 30, you're ready to have children and you come off the pill at 30, you are as sex, sexually mature or hormonally mature with your sexual hormones as you are as the day you started taking it. So it's no wonder that women are finding themselves with fertility challenges in their 30s because they were prescribed something when they were 16 without having the facts or information. If we can look, and this is where I'd bring in 
just lifestyle hacks at this point in time. Um, like you mentioned before, making sure our body is regulating our insulin properly, looking at little ways that we can do that, making sure that we're eating to support that. I actually am a huge advocate for young women fasting in the right way. And when I say that, definitely a 12-hour overnight fast and a little bit longer, a couple of days a week to just really make sure that you are able to regulate insulin properly because this obviously is a big factor with PCOS and that excess testosterone in the body is made because there's too much insulin sitting outside of the cells and it's not being taken inside. So we can hack that. We can totally hack that through nutrition and lifestyle. And so that's where I think these things become really appropriate for teens to know. And also I have teens that come into the clinic and I'll sit them down, especially with precocious puberty, because there is some evidence to suggest that girls that go through precocious puberty have a higher chance of developing PCOS. So I get them to start with this type of um, lifestyle and nutrition um, little hacks at that point in time, just in preparation. And there's no, no harm in doing that either. Right. And fasting, I mean, we've talked about fasting before. Fasting is a really easy, it's cheap, you know, it's free. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, there's no, you don't got to go to a special clinic. You just got to mm-hmm. close the fridge. Uh, I love that. Let, let's talk a little bit about the pill. We've talked about the pill on the podcast before. Uh, we've had lots of people, Dr. Maritza has been on, Dr. Jolie. We've had lots of uh, colleagues that I know, uh, you know, and love. I would love for you to speak to your experience or your clinical expertise around you know, what happens when a 16 year old uh, or, you know, an 11 or a 13 year old goes on the pill, because often the argument is, well, she's going to become sexually active at 16, you know, around that time, you know, I mean, for most of us, maybe earlier, maybe it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter, but like around that time is when women start to, or young girls start to become interested and engaging in sex. So it's like, well, why don't we just be careful in preventing the pregnancy? I have some very strong opinions about the pill, but I want, I would love to give you the floor to be able to speak to some of the clinical presentations that you see with girls who, you know, go on the pill, whether they've been on the pill for a couple of months or a couple of years or a couple of decades. I think the problem with the pill is there's two aspects to the pill or any synthetic hormone contraception. So I say the pill and especially for you teenagers. Hormonal contraception is kind of what yeah, you're Yeah, for teenagers, the pill is definitely and should be probably where they're steered. When I say should be, let me circle back on that. But for anyone listening, when it comes to synthetic hormones, whether it's the Marina, Depovera, whatever it might be, um, they still all have a similar impact on the body. And I think that's really important to understand and information that's missing for so many of us when we are prescribed uh, hormonal contraceptives. Um, But the issue I have is that it's one thing to use the pill for contraception and using that as a conscious choice because you have all the information and you've made an informed decision that that is what you feel is best for you is very different from using it to treat everything from missing periods to acne, PMS, ovulation pain. Um, We use it for so many things. I've got a list and it just goes on and on and on and on. They're two different things. One is because you've made a conscious choice as a contraceptive method. Over here, however, if we're using it to fix something that it actually can't fix, women are not often told this. And so they're prescribed it because they've got acne and as a 16-year-old, who wants acne? Nobody. So it's like, oh, awesome. I get to take the pill, be like my friends, and my skin clears up. 
But the issue with that is if you've got acne that's quite bad as a 16-year-old and you're not looking at why, that can be problematic beyond just the, being 16 and having acne. You more than likely do have some type of obvious hormone imbalance. And if that goes untreated for a very long period of time, a couple of things happen. Eventually, the symptoms come back, regardless of whether you're masking the symptoms or not, they do come back. And the pill, as we know it, definitely depletes our vitamin and mineral stores. It upsets our gut, our microbiome. And what we're learning also about our microbiome is certain bacteria actually metabolize hormones and certain bacteria help us make hormones. If we're not um, supporting that, that becomes a very big factor. If all of a sudden you can't say metabolize estrogen, as we've spoken about, we know there are bacteria strains that do that now. So if your if your gut health starts to become compromised, the gut integrity starts to be compromised, and that happens with all medications, not just the pill, it is a area where all of a sudden not only it, not only is the hormone imbalance still underlying because we haven't actually addressed it, but all of a sudden we don't have the nutrients for our body to work. We don't right. have, and our gut is, as we know, it is our epicenter. If that is you know, not functioning, it shows up in so many different places, not just hormone balance. So I have an issue also where young girls should, in my opinion, have the opportunity to really understand their own body rhythm and body wisdom. There's so much amazing, you know, information that can come from that to really understand yourself, what your body's telling you when you're fertile, when you're not. And if we're masking it or we're using the pill, we never have that opportunity to connect on that level. That to me is a no-brainer. That to me, and people say to me all the time that it's irresponsible to suggest that teenagers should, shouldn't be taking the pill. I say, I say it's irresponsible that A, we don't give them the body wisdom that they deserve and B, is it not ambitious to think that it just stops with the pill packet? If as a 16-year-old you start taking the pill and you think all your worries are going to go away, STDs are a massive issue for us and if you're not using barrier methods as teenagers to prevent pregnancy, then that to me is problematic as well. So there's lots of reasons why um, and as we spoke about also before, that sexual maturity and halting that, that, um, that those sex hormones and that maturation of your sex hormones, massive issue. So, you know, I know there are people out there that are on the pill and living their best life. I just don't see them in the clinic. I see the ones that are broken as a result of that and heartbroken because they were never informed of the long-term impacts of the pill. And the problem with the pill is we can't know how your body will respond to that until you start taking it. And the side effects are also pretty substantial when you look at a lot of the the effects that the pill can have from, you know, blood clots, mood swings, low libido, um, not to mention... Yes, stroke, like death, exactly. Um, So I think that this is all things that we need to consider. And I really long for the day that if you do make an informed decision to use synthetic hormones, that you also do your due diligence and understand all the other things that you can do to support your body so that when you decide to transition off, perhaps the impact won't be quite as severe as what it would be if you didn't do those things. I don't think that's the solution, but I think at least you're doing something and being proactive if that is what you choose. 
And I love the idea of in, informed consent seems to be becoming the through line of this podcast. <laughs> it's like anytime I talk about any medication, it's like you have to understand what this is going to do. And if you, after you understand the possibility, you still say, this is the right choice for me. Like that is the best place to make your decision from. If you mm -hmm. understand all of the risks, not just the one, not just when you go to the doctor and they say, it's a low dose, it's not going to, it's fine. It's like benign you know, that's not informed consent. That's just someone rushing you through their day. So if you take a time, the time to read the packet, to do your, you know, listen to podcasts like this, or listen to experts like yourself, getting your book, reading through all of these, you know, the types of derangements and the types of things that can happen from taking it and you're okay with it, then that is a beautiful thing. But if you're just you know, you're like, well, my doc, I'm just, you know, delegating this decision to my doctor, you know, we, you know, without kind of, I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a second here. You know, we have a really poor history of taking with women. We tend to cut things out or like we, we cut off breasts. We take out uteruses. We chemically castrate women with the pill because that's the easy thing for tip in, in the sort of medical paradigm. That's the easy way to deal with a woman. Now, whether those things, of course, there's nuance. I'm sort of making, you know, broad statements here, but when you decide to take the pill, this is, as you said, you are well, I will say it. You are chemically castrating yourself. You are cutting your brain off from your gonads. You're cutting your brain off from your ovaries. And if you're okay with that decision, that's fine. But you have to understand what you're getting into. And I think that so often we marry, we get attached to the promise of what it can do for us. Oh, no acne. Oh, I don't have to wear a condom. And we divorce ourselves from the risk. And I think that that is um, something that happens, you know, we're seeing that kind of play out, you know, in 2020 in many, uh, many different ways, but I think it's important for us to really just stop and say, okay, I'm taking a foreign compound. What is this doing? And, and I wanted to kind of, I'm trying my best to sort of parse this with it, with another, um, topic, which is libido, because one of the kind of ironic things about the pill is that it kills your libido. So you're like, Hey, free, you know, you know, risk-free sex. And it tends to kill your libido. So it's sort of ironic that, you know, sometimes, you know, couples will get on the pill because they don't have children yet, or she's not ready or whatever. And they end up um, having all these like, she, you know, vaginal lubrication and, you know, pelvic floor muscles that facilitate orgasms are now, you know, degenerating and sex can become more painful. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do rather awkwardly is talk about libido, you know, some of the, you know, complications that can happen from the pill, but also when we're talking to our teenagers, I'm trying to bring this back to our teenage girls here. When we're talking to our teenage girls around libido, I think that this is also an important conversation that we should be having with them because mm -hmm. we were saying in the pre-chat, like, it's just like all fun and games for guys, like their voice cracks or we, you know, you know, we send them to their room to kind of, you know, deal with whatever, you know, deal with whatever they're, they're dealing with. But for, for girls, we don't, we don't have that conversation around sensuality, sexuality, and what it means to feel excited and feel aroused and what you can be doing with those feelings. All of those things that you're talking about are potentially turned off by taking the pill. So they never get that experience. If you, and you're only finding yourself as a young woman and what that even is. So I want to say one thing before we go here that I think is important. I think where we go wrong, just to go track back one second with the pill, is that 
we are going to our general doctor for advice that we probably should be going to someone that is an expert in hormones, whether that's our gynecologist or whoever else might have taken many years to understand hormones. That's not necessarily the role of your general doctor. And that's where I think the disconnect is because the reason that you're having symptoms whatever that is, is your body's way of trying to communicate to you what's actually going wrong. And I'll tell you nine times out of 10, I can work out what's going wrong, going on with someone based on their signs and symptoms over any test that I will ever have them do. Yeah. It's very clear to me to be able to work that out. After seeing, you know, tens of thousands of patients, you get to be able to, to see that and know that. So trust that your symptoms are just your body's way of telling you or communicating with you uniquely for you what is going on and finding and using that to become curious, I think is really important. Now, when it comes to libido, obviously the pill turns off many things. And if we're shutting down our, our hormones and especially our sex hormones and to a degree other hormones, whether it's, you know, we're not making the, the feel good hormones properly, because again, they're produced obviously in the gut, things like serotonin and dopamine. If we're not doing that adequately, we aren't going to feel very good. We also know, as you said, that the um, pill secretes the cervical crypts that secrete vaginal or cervical mucus. Now, if there's no cervical mucus, sex is not going to feel very nice. And especially as a, as a young woman, you don't even know what arousal really is until you learn it. But if you never get to fully learn it properly, it's probably not going to be that great of an experience anyway. There's also some research and evidence to suggest that um, the pill alters our senses, it alters our pheromones. And so what that has been suggested is when it comes to finding a suitable partner, we're often attracted to someone different when we're on the pill than if we were off the pill. And I guess that can be problematic for fertility reasons down the track because not everybody is compatible. Um, and so I think that what really we're talking about here, as you said, is this biz, this big disconnect because A, as a woman, we don't actually know who we are. And that would be the number one thing women say to me when they transition off the pill. They say, I don't know who this is, but I feel like amazing and I've never felt like this before. I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know what to say. I've never experienced this before. My heart breaks. If you've lived like that for 10 years, not actually being able to experience emotions properly, go through, you know, various ups and downs, even the menstrual cycle, like as women, we are different every single day of the month. Every single day of the month, we are different. We're not the same as yesterday. Yesterday, we want broccoli. Tomorrow, we want chocolate. Like, we are different hormonally every day. If you never get to experience that, that to me is such a disservice to women. Again, never really understanding your body properly. So I think it's interesting with libido because there's many reasons why a woman on the pill her libido is shut down, whether it's because she's just never known her cycle and the ebbs and flows of that, whether or not that she's, you know, it's painful because she doesn't have enough lubrication, whether or not she's having sex with someone she doesn't actually like. <laughs> and she doesn't know because her, like that MHC, that major histocompatibility complex is altered. Like there's been stories where, you know, you get together with someone while you're on the pill and then you get off the pill and you're like, I don't, like this guy. Yeah. Like I'm not into this yeah. guy anymore. Yeah. 
Yep, exactly. So there's there's lots of reasons why libido becomes, I think, a factor. I just think it's quite hilarious that the one reason you're taking the pill if it's for contraception is so that you can have sex that's apparently easier and less fuss, you know, there's less of a fuss with it or fuss-free. When you don't actually feel like having sex, then that's kind of problematic as far as I'm concerned. So it doesn't really make sense, but especially for young women. I think if you never get the opportunity to really know who you are, to really have these experiences, to really know your cycle, then that's just heartbreaking. And also, I mean, I've been practicing body wisdom, natural fertility awareness, whatever you want to call it, forever. I have two children that were conceived the month that we tried for both of them. I know when I'm fertile. I know when I'm not. To me, I'm on the other side going, once you know this stuff about your body and you know when you're fertile and when you're not just based on your body rhythms and watching your body over, you know, 25, 30 years, you can't not know it. I'm baffled in the other way. And and so I understand that it can feel very grey for people to go, oh, really? You trust yourself? You know, I don't trust myself. That's the number one thing women say to me. I don't trust myself. I am like... Uh, what do you say to that? Um, you don't trust yourself. Well, then who do you trust? If you cannot trust yourself, who do you actually trust? And so, again, if we're feeding that information to our children, our oh, mum doesn't trust herself, well, she's not going to trust herself either. And do you really want that for your daughter? Right, right. And it's, it's uh, you know, when you don't trust yourself, what, you know, if that's the, that's the presiding, you know, message, you never really know how to appropriately respond to yourself. You never really know how to take care of yourself. And I think as a woman, one of the rites of passages is to understand on an intimate level, how to take care of yourself. And as you said, you're different every single day of the month, your hormonal milieu is always changing. There's ups, there's downs, there's expansion, there's contraction, there's bleeding, there's not, there's ovulation. There's all these different, beautiful qualities of being a woman. And once you can understand and embrace those things, you are now, you know, part of the very few, I think, women who know how to appropriately respond to her internal environment and her external environment. When she knows when she needs to take a break, when she needs to sleep a little bit more. I love with the day I get my period, I love to sleep in an extra hour. That is like my little treat to myself. I got my period. I'm sleeping in by an hour. Cause I know that that's just what feels good for me. And that's not true for everybody. That's just my own rhythm, but that's something that I know that I, um, that my body wants, that my body craves. And I just, I just give it to her rather than like, no, it's like, doesn't matter. I'm on my period. I got to wake up at six today. It's like, no, I'm waking up at seven because that's-, well, that's the thing too. We push through our periods as women We've, we're, and that's why I think it's important to touch on that being different every single day of the cycle and really being a able to learn what that is. It's not, it shouldn't be a mystery to you by this mm-hmm. point in time. You should know yeah. roughly how you're going to feel at every, any given stage of the cycle. I'm about to get my period and I'm, really like put this jumpsuit on today. I'm like, wow, I'm bloated. (laughs) But I know my period will probably come today or tomorrow and I know why I'm bloated and that's okay. It's like, oh, whatever. I don't really care. And you can be loving loving, like, oh girl, like it's about to happen. Like, like, let's just, yeah. And also the same as like doing a workout on your period. Do you work out the same? No, I don't. Sometimes I do. Every now and again, I'm like, I, I actually feel like bringing it today. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I need to take it down a few notches or mm-hmm. nothing at all. And that's mm-hmm. cool too. So right. if you know this about yourself, it becomes a game changer because A, you can accept, you know, who you are and how you might be on any certain day. But B, also, 
every now and again, you might be like, oh, everyone's driving me insane and I just don't know why and I really need, and then your period arrives. You're like, oh, yeah, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you can use it either way, really, right, can't you? Right. It's <laughs> funny. I It reminds me, I was, there was one day I was working out, I have a home gym and I was working out. I'm like, God, I just don't have it today. Like what is going on? Like I have no energy. I went into my little app and I was like, Oh, day 27. Oh, that's why, you know? And I was like, ah, and then you, there's like a, because you have that explanation, you don't have the opportunity to turn it inwards and be like, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just do it? Why can't I just push through it? Why can't there's an element of forgiveness and softness and nurturing that can, that can be birthed from knowing where you are in your cycle and what it is that you need. If you're on the pill, you're never going to know this. That's, that's the thing. Right. And that's when women come off also, uh, something else they all say to me, all say to me, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know anything. I don't know what ovulation is. I don't know how to look out for the signs. I didn't even know that I wasn't ovulating. That's one of the most common things a woman will say to me. I didn't know it wasn't a real period. I didn't know I'm not ovulating. Right. But, well, right. no, it's not. You're just withdrawing from a hormone. That's a withdrawal bleed. And then we shut them down again. We give them a minute and then we shut them down again. And so I think, yeah, just this information that your body serves you each and every day is the most important thing as a woman I think you can use to not only understand yourself but hack your life really. Mm -hmm. So let's assume that we have our 16-year-old, we are empowered, we're having this conversation saying, listen, your period might go a little gong showy for the next one to two years. Um, and let's assume that there's no PCOS in the family, but we're going to ride it out. We're going to tighten up some of these lifestyle factors. How do we speak to our teenagers around sexuality and sensuality as women? Because I think one of the things that I... I, I reject at least currently is that this idea that men, so I understand physiologically men have more testosterone. They are going to have a bigger uh, sexual, they are going to be thinking about sex more often. But I also think that in our own way, if we are able to love and nurture ourselves, if we understand how to be in our bodies. And I often will say like just below the throat, like not just in our heads, like running all the algorithms, but we're in our bodies. We're in our hips. We are able to um, embrace all of our parts that there is a um, cultural misappropriation that girls have to be, that their sexuality cannot be celebrated or not talked about. So how do we speak to our girls around what it's like to feel excited, what it's like to feel um, sexually attracted to someone, how that may cloud thinking, how, you know, because we also want to keep it like, a, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast before, like teenagers, their brains are not fully like our musculoskeletal system and, and the neuromusculoskeletal system, not uh, fully developed until 25. So your frontal lobe, which is your decision maker, doesn't fully come online until you're about 25 years old. But as a 16 or 17 year old, you may really be into a guy, like you may be really smitten. So how do we talk to, how do we talk to our girls around sexuality, sensuality, how, why that's important as a woman not to reject your body? Because what I tend to see is a lot of type A women who are divorced from their bodies, living above the throat, running all the algorithms, pretending to be men. Um, and, and really, we, there's this rejection of the body, rejection of the self. So what are some of the things that you, that you think are important when it comes to a teenager, sensuality and sexuality? 
Yeah, I did put a section in the book about should I have sex or when should I have sex? And it's not an easy question to answer, is it really? Because I don't know if you should or not. I don't know your situation. I don't know your circumstances. But I really think that what, first of all, having the conversation, just being open. The reality is kids are doing it. That's the reality. So whether we like it or not, whether we have our own thoughts, values, beliefs, whatever it might be, they're doing it. So we would would you not rather that be in a supportive way that you is there's some open conversation and discussion or would you rather it be a secret? Now, I know some of us are probably saying I'd rather it be secret. I don't really want to know. I don't want to think about it, but I wonder what your experience has been. I wonder what your mother said to you, I wonder what sort of conversations you might have been able to have or didn't have and therefore are disconnected, as you've said, and operating very much up in here and definitely not down in here. Um, In answering the question in the book, I said, I explained to teenagers how it could feel if it was in the right environment in the right way. Sex shouldn't be painful. It should be scary fun, scary exciting, not scary bad. So starting to ask yourself the questions, you know, is this something that is scary good? Is this something that I'm excited about? Because if these these factors are all considered, by the time you actually are having sex, it really should be something that is you know, a good experience, obviously. And that's what you want to create for yourself. You want to create an experience where it's everything that you hoped it had been and more. So there's only one way to really do that, and that is to be completely comfortable. And, I mean, I don't know, you're not going to be completely comfortable as a teenager, but I think over time you become more and more comfortable and create an environment and a situation where it is with someone that actually you want to do that with. And asking yourself, is is this someone I want to do this with? Is this because what also happens is that we become to a degree, once we open up that part of ourselves, we do become in a way somewhat attached to that person, especially when you're not mature enough to be able to make those decisions or see things in a black and white way. And so that's something else that I say to teenagers and parents is that you do develop some level of attachment to whoever it might be and is is that is that a, is that a great thing is that so thinking about some of these and answering some of these questions i think helps young people to work out is this good is this bad am i ready am i just doing this because everybody else is do i really want to do that um and really setting yourself up for a really beautiful experience i think is what is most important that so it doesn't have to hurt so it doesn't have to be awful so it doesn't have to be shameful or embarrassing and that might mean just waiting it out a little bit like what would be the worst thing if you just sat on it for a bit and observed how you felt and explore other things that you can do before having sexual intercourse that are something that might lead up to help it be a better experience so i think talking about the experience and not the actual act itself is very important so that they can, again, become more in touch with themselves and how it makes them feel. But the problem is we don't talk about it still. So we as adults don't even talk about it with our our teenagers or our children even. And so it's, again, it's a taboo subject. And so when it's time, they've got to figure it out themselves. So what if we were talking about it? What if 
when, you know, Olivia's asking these questions and she's like, do you need a cushion? Does what happens then? She didn't ask about it hurting or being, you know, that would be obviously the next conversation in my mind that we would be able to have based on the conversations we've previously had. So I don't think it's one of these things that we get to 16 and go, okay, honey, we're having the conversation. I think it needs to continue to be this organic discussion about how good it can be in the right environment and really aiming for a great experience, not something that was horrible, awkward, and painful. Right. This is why we need to have the mothers, the grandmothers, the aunts, the friends, all the people at the table having the conversation, because this is where we can have this, you know, this wisdom that you keep referring to, which I love this like female wisdom where we can pass this on to our younger generation. And this is going to empower them to make better decisions that are more aligned with what they want and what and who they are. Absolutely. And if you're sitting here as a mother cringing because it's just not your way, there will be someone in your life that your daughter resonates with that maybe they can have the conversation with and feel that they can trust and, you know, um, connect with and talk to. But I do think, yes. And I think once upon a time, we would have spoken about this stuff all the time because the men were off doing whatever they did, hunting, gathering, and the women were all doing the other things. And there would have been, you know, a community where when cousin over here has an issue go speak to aunt over here and it was this there was there was a lot of people to help whereas we've isolated ourselves so much that that's not really our experience anymore and so how do we get back to the community and the community's responsibility in supporting every generation really but especially for me these teenagers so that they can have all the information that we've had to figure out ourselves wonderful so if people want to find out more about you and your works, so I know you're in Melbourne right now. Uh, do you see people internationally? Do you have, I mean, let's, let me plug your book and tell people where they can find you online and all the good things. Absolutely. Everything is Nat Kringudis. So I'm Nat Kringudis on Instagram and natkringudis.com is my website, which is where you'll find all of my resources, masterclasses, books. Um, and also there's a hormone worksheet there that you might want to check out. If you're sitting here going, oh, I think I do have, a hormone imbalance. I go through the top five uh, hormone imbalances that we do see in clinic. And it's not going to give you a definite answer, but it's going to be enough to help you get curious and maybe give you some type of line to start to, to head down. Um, and yes, we treat people all over the world and have done for a long time. So there's nothing that is too, too difficult when it comes to time zones or solutions. And I'd love to help. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nat. This has been a great conversation. I know this is going to help a lot of moms with their teenagers, with their young girls, and they're thinking about these conversations. This is how, this is how we change the trajectory of our young girls, our beautiful next generation. So thank you so much for your wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. All right, Bettys. I hope that you found that conversation useful and a way for you to begin thinking about how you can begin to speak to your daughters or your nieces, or if you are an educator, you know, young girls in your sphere where you can be having these intelligent conversations and helping them in their development and their understanding 
of their beautiful, unique physiology and really just getting rid of the shame that tends to come with it. And I would love for that to be the reality of the girls of uh, even this generation, but the ones coming up behind us and the ones coming up behind them for us not to really be ashamed of our basic physiological processes. So hope that you enjoyed this one. And as always, I am looking forward to seeing you next week. Please rate and review the podcast if you are finding it useful. And I will see you same Betty time, same Betty channel next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 